three friends. Three cities. One question. How can we turn this world around? You're on with Earth Friends. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Good day, everybody. We are now on our next episode with our special guest entitled Meet the Transformers, featuring none other than Alec Brewer. What's up? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so, a short introduction about Alec. Alec Brewer is soon to be an alumni at the University of Virginia with a degree in biomedical engineering. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Transform, a startup developing a biomanufacturing platform to tackle global plastic pollution by turning waste into biodegradable plastic. He is also the co-founder of Refurnished, a student-led effort to align community and university programs to recover home furnishings, diverting them from landfills. On the side, Alec enjoys, enjoys spending time outdoors and has recently gotten into longboarding, climbing, and trail running. Welcome. Awesome. So, Alec, open our show by asking each of our guests, what has impacted you this week? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question, all things considering it is a Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I've had a pretty impactful week. I, in fact, a reflective one at that. Um, last week was a tough one. We had a lot on our plate, but as a team, we came together and got it all done and learned a lot in the process. And so I'd, uh, I'd have to say that's a pretty successful week at that. Um, and impactful in the sense that I'm now wrapping up college uh, in a matter of these next two weeks. Yay. Really. Yay. And, uh, and so just about anything of that magnitude that happens is uh, definitely impactful at this point in my life. Oh my gosh. Welcome. Good luck with finals. I know that should be coming up. But I know you spoke about your team. So we'd love for everyone to learn a little bit more about Transform, how the company came to life, your story with the company, and anything you want to share that can get us started. Yeah. So I think you already know a little bit about the background. So feel free to ask specific questions if there's anything you want to hear more about. Um, Perhaps I'm going through it, anything you come up with. Um, But my co-founder, Simone, actually came up with the idea a little over two years ago now. Um, We were the opportunity to participate in a student research project or a student research competition, actually, in which uh, college students around the world are tasked with solving world problems using synthetic biology. Mm. Engineering organisms, microorganisms in particular, to be able to do what we want um, and perform to improve some facet of daily life. And so Simone, being really interested in sustainability and a pretty active environmentalist, was really passionate about the plastic problem And so she got together and with her group mates had decided on solving a plastic problem. And upon learning more about how to do so, uh, found out about PHB and then subsequently the ability to remediate waste plastic and decided to put the two together to create a beginning and end of life solution for plastic pollution. So that's the, the ideation phase. And that was in the spring of 2019. I said we were given the opportunity to do research on it for And so for the next six months or so, a team of a bunch of us got together and 
finally got to get our hands on it in the lab and tried to build um, what was the initial concept and design for Transfoam. Uh, in that time, it did not work out all that well. We were very novice synthetic biologists, uh, but we learned a lot and we met a lot of great people and got a lot of encouragement, especially as the competition came to a close and we really got to show our colors and who we were that Transfoam has potential uh, to make a real world impact and that our team, um, you know, having come up with the idea and having that sort of experience working on it, uh, had the potential to be the ones to take the market. And so inspired by that, uh, we put our heads together or, or we came back as a team and decided who would want to go forward with the research. And Simone, Kobe and I emerged as those eager to do so. And with the support of the university in March of last year, uh, so right as things were starting to get a little bit shaky around COVID, we did decide to incorporate and have been going full steam ahead since then as a company. Amazing. It's so interesting how time flies when you're working on a project. So from 2019 to being just um, purely researched in, in the R&D phase, now you're incorporated as of last year. So what what are your plans for the future? Like, where do you see yourself um, going in the next few years? And what what are the next goals that you guys have in mind? Yeah, yeah, in the short term, um, I'd say the most exciting thing is that Kobe and I will both be going full time. Um, so that was something that we had all hoped and, and planned for a year ago, but only recently secured the funds and I guess with that, the confidence to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but with that, that also means we're gonna start growing a lot faster mm -hmm. um, and, and growing towards those long-term goals that I, I guess I'll probably now tell you about. Um, so yeah, ultimately we, we just wanna help uh, the, the plastics market deliver sustainable products to consumers and do so accessibly. Mm, um, yeah. So right now, as I've, as I've explained to you in the past, uh, the biodegradable, market, biodegradable plastics market is struggling to keep up with the demand. And I mean, that's a great thing that, that the demand mm. exists. Yeah. Um, however, if you can't meet it, then you're not really solving a problem. Yeah. And so by entering the market and by rapidly scaling our solution um, from you know what we are at the bench top right now to a pilot scale semi-works and eventually a full-scale plant, we will contribute to the growth and flourishing of this market um, and ultimately the sustainable transition that we're undergoing right now um, as we're converting from the you know unsustainable petroleum-based plastics that we're used to using to more sustainable bio-based alternatives. And better than that, bio-based alternatives that are based on very resourceful solutions like our own, you know, really leaning into the essence of circularity and using waste as the raw material for a very high value product. Now that you mentioned the kind of the market and the demand for other alternatives or non-traditional plastics, do you think that will ever reach a point where traditional plastics don't exist? Maybe not necessarily in third world countries, like for the Philippines at least. At least the price points are too competitive. They need to be really, really cheap for the market. But in the US and other first world countries, do you think we'll get there in the near or even soon future? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and it's a really difficult one to answer. 
Um, and I'll just admit my ignorance. I, I haven't been in the industry as y'all know. And so I, I don't have those really informed perspectives to say, uh, especially not informed from the petroleum side of the market to say that, you know, they'll ever go away or that they're going to lean into the more sustainable alternatives. Mm-hmm. What I want to believe is that nobody wants to destroy the planet. Um, I don't know if that's true, uh, but I but I hope that is. Um, and with that, I think as people begin to recognize the mal effects of these materials, you will see a reduction in their use. But I don't see you'll you, I don't think you'll see a complete elimination. I think they do have their place in certain applications. Um, you know, they're not great for food service contact items because those are the ones that are allowing us to ingest microplastics. But for your multi-use you know, inert, just hard plastic applications where it's just going to sit there and get the job done and do so for, you know, a long time to come and replace materials like, you know, wood in some instances, um, metals even in others. I do think it holds some value, especially when you really need something to be that cost effective. Um, because those other materials don't offer that and, um, and oftentimes do have a very comparable, if not worse, footprint, depending upon the application that you're looking at. So you really have to take a look at the bigger life cycle analysis um, than just, and, and that is for a specific use case, than just trying to understand whether or not they will entirely go away. Um, I will say, however, that from our standpoint as a bio-based plastic manufacturer um, our materials can replace petroleum-based plastics in nearly every application if not every application and so as we are reaching the market um, there is an immense variability in the applications that we can go about it um, which is good in some reasons or some regards but but not all of them and that is because it takes away a little bit from the focus of where they are best suited. Um, and that has caused some confusion in the market. But I, I can talk more about that if you, if you want me to clarify at all. No, I completely agree with you with the idea that we should be using everything in a balance. So like replacing like food containers or the delivery products with materials or for example, the product you guys are producing, that would be such a great idea. So what are your thoughts about raw materials as a solution to plastic? For example, like some bags or utensils made out of like cassava or seaweed or even like potato starch. I remember seeing that. <laughs> even bamboo. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot yeah. of like bamboo straws, bamboo, reusable utensils, or like even compost. Like I think, yeah, the potato starch, the ones that you can even eat. I know there's now like edible cutlery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... I think that stuff might be taken a little bit too far. I don't, I don't know if we need to, to lean that far into it. But I do think it's really important for consumers to understand what is not only sustainable, but what is safe for them to be consuming and for them to be consuming off of. Uh, and I think that's something that we are only now beginning to understand. But concern is growing over rapidly um, due to the immense rate at which mm-hmm. it's occurring. And so it goes back to what I was saying in the last question is I I think they all have their place in the market. Um, It becomes immensely difficult as, as we're all aware because of the cost 
um, and, and the trade-off of using these materials versus the cost of the products as we know them. Um, but that's when it comes down to the question of, do we need these products at all? Um, you know, do you need a single use straw to exist? And, and maybe I'd flip this back your way, uh, if you care to answer, like, do you think certain products are necessary um, or, or are there replacements perhaps more naturally occurring than creating these artificial or synthetic products that exist in these forms? That's a great question. Or at least frame of mindset to think about. Because I think when you mentioned that we, we probably don't have to lean too far, maybe that's what the disconnect or the gap is between people seeing going sustainable, uh, ironically, as unsustainable, or that there's not as much access to sustainable options. But as a student, what gaps do you see in education surrounding environmental sustainability on a very basic level, like with the conversations that you have with other friends that aren't your co-founders or on your team, do you think that there is this heightened awareness about how to live a more sustainable life? Just out of context, we came up with this question because we felt like we got into this quite late in our lives, not, not particularly late in terms of the whole human lifespan but like we we just personally felt like it should have been taught from as early as preschool so um given your background and what you do we wanted to ask you the same question and how you felt about that and i think i think that's an immensely valuable question to ask and i i kind of feel the same way you do if i'm being honest i, I think simone would do a much better job at answering um, and I will preface this with, I, I am biased, you know, ever, ever since my second year and having this project put in front of me, um, I was converted, right, <laughs> in that sense. But um, I've always had an appreciation for the outdoors, mm. but I never really understood sustainability. Mm. Um, and I think the difference there is I, I, as a kid, would see the brown waters and the waste and I, I knew it was gross. I knew there was a problem um, in particular with litter, but yeah. I never really understood when it came down to waste management that a problem existed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I used to drive by the landfill and my dad would tell me this used to be a hole when I was a kid and now it's a hundred feet high over my head, but I never really processed what that meant or that it were a yeah. very finite solution and, and a problem-ridden solution. Um, and so I think that would be the flaw that I would point out is the system that exists is still doing a really good job at making us look like it's working and it's doing the job that it needs to do when in reality it is not. And I think that's the biggest disconnect and something that I quite frankly did not become aware of until I really dug my feet in or, or dug my heels into the, that's not even how the saying goes, um, <laughs> dug into this topic though and, and found my interest. <clears throat> it literally, as I said, had to be placed in front of me. When Simone and her team pitched the project, um, I was awed by it. I, I was very enthused. Um, I wouldn't say I even realized why or that it was because it was about sustainability. 
Um, but very quickly after that, um, yeah, I, I dug right in. And as you mentioned earlier, um, started working very uh, enthusiastically, not only on Transfoam, but refurnished in line with that sustainability. And, um, and I, I think more at its core, even mentally to me, resourcefulness. Yeah. And I, I think perhaps that is something um, that is relatively easy to teach, um, but is, isn't so much so. Yeah, I can I can relate to you there. Like when when you mentioned the landfill that was increasing or in height over time, you just think of it as a way of life or something that just happens. But you wouldn't really think for think like think the extra question and say what happens next, like what happens after that, and or how even many how more you of this contribute to that. Exactly. Ways. Like I don't right. think my initial instinct would have been to question how much do I consume or what is my consumption or how does my consumption result in ways that contributes then to this landfill. Mm-hmm. But I think nowadays that's kind of because of this heightened awareness, what has become the thought pattern, at least for me, like if I see all of these like in New York, the garbage piles when it's trash day on the street and I'm thinking about okay how many times a week do we take out the trash and Mm -hmm. or fill up our trash bin exactly yeah and and the numbers are just astounding and and I think it leaves kind of some ponderance for two questions one of which you already raised why aren't we teaching this in preschool Um, which I would, I would love an answer to, but I I think it's just the mere fact of the matter is people are just too new to the concern or or just beginning to understand why the concern should and needs to exist. And then two um, is kind of similar to something along the lines that cars brought up. And that is, yeah, it just is an accepted part of daily life. It it was never something I questioned as being out of the ordinary, but it makes me question um, perhaps why didn't someone like my dad who had seen it as a whole question it, um, or perhaps it was the generation before him. I think it, I think it was a generation thing. Even, even my dad was similar. Like we'd have, he, he'd know the science behind it, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't cause alarming like levels like it would with our generation. I, I, I think it's that way too. And as much as we'd want to answer that question of why this hasn't been taught in preschool, I'm pretty sure it's a, a regulation thing, right? Like, I, if the government mandated that all schools be taught this at a certain level or, you know, continue continually growing this um, education over time from preschool all the way to college, it would definitely change the mindsets of people. But... In relation to that, though, like, how would your how would you think the current government regulations of plastic pollution suffice in expanding your company to a broader sector of the economy? Who education and then government? You really, really dig it in there. Um, yes, Han. <laughs> you're asking the good questions. <laughs> I, I like it. Um, so. That really depends upon where you are in the world. And I think that's the first and most important thing to establish. But nobody is doing it entirely correctly just yet. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'll give like three really easy examples for you. Um, the United States has banned microplastics intentionally put in things like face scrubs, which is great. No more explicit microplastic production, but you're still producing petroleum-based plastics, which are still producing microplastics when they're littered. It's like the tip of the uh, iceberg. Right, exactly. Um, similarly, in the EU, you know, they're very much against oxo-degradable compostable plastics, which I think is really important because I'm one of the firm believers that oxo-degradables are not truly a biodegradable solution. I, I think there's a lot of residues and other molecules that have the potential to cause very similar harm, um, if not more harm than traditional just macro-formed microplastics. Um, And then the third would be something like Australia, who uh, is a little bit behind on the curve with this one, I think. While they haven't been banned, still uses PFOAs pretty readily. Um, And PFOAs are under immense scrutiny from a variety of regulatory agencies. So the point I'm making there is that no uh, no country is doing it perfectly, but everybody's got the right idea. And that is to continue trending towards safer chemicals. Um, but as you know, um, especially in U.S. politics, um, the money does a lot of the yeah. talking. And so, yeah, I, I don't know how much more I have to say to that, but the petroleum industry is really good at talking and does a lot of it. And my example of that would be that we have 14 states in the U.S. that have banned bans on single-use plastic bags at grocery stores. Meanwhile, only nine of them have passed bans on the bags themselves. So think California and New York, right? No more plastic bags. But I believe North Dakota, don't quote me on this, but North Dakota, perhaps a couple other, well, definitely a couple others in there have, uh, have just outright banned those bans. And I forget what a ban on ban is called. There's, there's a technical term for it that I'll never remember. Um, but yeah, learning that alone just bewildered me. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing. And then there's also a really interesting point that I started digging into in some of my research for my thesis. Uh, it ended up being a little bit beyond the scope, so I don't think it's going to end up in there. But that's the fact of the matter is when you ban a particular single-use item, for example, straws, just going back to our former example, Um, whether it's at the organizational level like Starbucks or the state level like New York State, um, county level maybe, again, don't quote me on some of these things, you are making or you're allowing the petroleum companies behind it to say, wow, look at, you know, we're removing this much of the waste stream. We're not, no more turtles with straws up their noses, like all good and the problem solved. But those solutions reflect a like very, very, very minuscule fraction of the larger problem and end up deriving more benefit more often than not for the companies than actual good for the environment. And I don't know exactly if this is true on a weight basis, but then you look at the the lids that Starbucks introduced once they got rid of their straws. It was newer, comfier lids. And I'm pretty sure those lids were larger and thicker than the previous ones, therefore requiring more plastic material. 
So I don't know. You you got to do the math yourself at the end of the day. That's why I'll go back down to or, or I'll revert back to uh, life cycle analyses and, and why they're important. But you also got to be careful there because they can end up being very subjective as well. And so yeah. ultimately, I think that's one of the key failures in government regulation is that we just, and that's globally, we don't have a firm basis yet for what is sustainable and what is unsustainable. And that's not necessarily the government's fault. That's a matter of time and research and money. Um, but again, we know where the money is. So I'd leave it at that. So are you hopeful about the new administration's like push, like Biden's large scale sustainable infrastructure plan? And do you think Transform can possibly have an easier time operating with his new administration and the new bill or I think it's called bill or plan he's trying to push for? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely excited. I think sustainable infrastructures are great for mm -hmm. obviously in the environment, but I think for the economy in the long run as well. Mm -hmm. um, in the short term, that's not going to be the case, but it took decades for the petroleum industry to reach the scale that it did as well. And so until you have sustainable infrastructures doing the same, you can't necessarily expect that they'll be profitable. And then even once they are operating at that capacity, they're not going to be as profitable. Um, but that's a mere fact of the matter that, that kind of has to be accepted um, and is a blow that, that kind of can be absorbed by our world economy um, in the long run. Now, I don't know enough about uh, the global economy and how it operates and its complexities. It, it is far too complex for any one person to know enough about. Yeah. Um, but that said, um, I, I do think, at least with the, the larger push, it will help companies like our own get up on their feet. Um, that's not necessarily like a one-to-one -one individual help basis. So I can't guarantee that it's going to help Transform have an easier time operating, but it will help a lot of companies within our sector and adjacent and parallel sectors to do so. Um, and I mean, I can only do my best to ensure that it does help us have an easier time. For example, um, keeping, out, uh, keeping an eye out for land grants for sustainable infrastructures, um, which are very prominent depending upon the region of the US you're in. Um, it can you know, come down to my own individual involvement in the writing of regula regulation. Um, that was a project that I was trying to work on back during iGEM. We were actually trying to get involved in Virginia's state ban on polystyrene. Wow. And uh, yeah, fortunately now, actually just earlier this year, it was banned um, or it will be banned by 2024 in, um, in food containers in particular. I don't know if it's much more broad than that, but that was where we wanted to start. Um, and I, I don't think we had anything to do with it. I think it would have already had to have been in the works. Yeah. Um, and we just might not have known about it, but it's very exciting to see that, yes, they're encouraging at least um, the mindset, perhaps for consumers, at the very least, to to then look for these sustainable products and sustainable solutions um, or alternatives to, to the current standard. Yeah, it seems That's like very true. priorities are starting to change and they're starting to pick up on the idea of sustainability, which is really great. And the market, it, it gives a opportunity for a new market to emerge. Mm. <laughs>
Absolutely. And I'll have to say, I know I know the focus of that question was about Biden's plan. I'll be completely frank. I don't know about uh, the granular details of the plan, but I can say at the very least, you will likely see the emergence of a lot of support um, kind of reverberating or rippling out from that, um, meaning even if it's not direct government support, you'll see a lot of private organizations following suit, whether that's government contractors being the closest to the government, um, down to, I guess, also pretty close to the government in some sense, the banks now who are encouraging their companies to become sustainable for the fact, or, or with noticing the fact of the matter is with Biden's plan, perhaps exemplifying that this is the direction that we are going. Yeah, so good things are coming up for the U.S. right now. And I'm, I'm supporting from the Philippines. <laughs> I'm going to be keeping a close eye there. Albeit slow, it is, it is, it is happening. Something's finally happening. Out. And much better place than we were a couple months ago. Our last from the last four yeah. years. Yeah, a lot has changed already. And that's good. I just wanted to ask, because um, as you mentioned, oxo-biodegradable plastic is bad. But in the Philippines, it's still considered an eco-solution. And mm-hmm. I'm asking on a separate note, sorry, because we banned plastic bags in our mall. And there is a certain merchant that was endorsing this certification from this company saying that they are an eco product because they are oxo biodegradable would you mind debunking that for me and can you maybe for those who don't know like me what oxo biodegradable means yeah i'll i'll give a full background uh, starting a little bit more broadly than just oxo degradables you have catalyst mediated degradation and when applied to plastics so a catalyst mediated degradable plastic it basically means that you include either a chemical or a biologic component that allows it to degrade upon disposal Um, so oxodegradables in particular have bonds that and don't quote me on the science here either have been no they have they haven't been oxidized can be more readily oxidized uh, therefore allowing them to be degraded more readily when they are exposed to intense UV, oxygen, and other you know, frictional and degradative forces upon disposal. Whether that's in the environment, the landfill, or the compost pile, these materials do degrade to the human eye. And mm-hmm. um, this is kind of what Cars was suggesting in terms of debunking the myth um, I'm not going to debunk anything because um, I, I don't know the science behind every catalyst-mediated degradable polymer that exists. Again, you can have certain chemicals. You can have them at different points in the polymeric chain. You can have enzymes that can actually come in and break down that chain. Um, but my understanding is that the majority of that breakdown and decomposition happens only to the naked eye, um, basically saying that, yeah, you're going ahead and you're breaking the polymeric chain, 
um, but you're only breaking it into smaller fragments. So smaller pieces yeah. of polypropylene, polyethylene, and, and other plastics, uh, or constituent molecules such as waxes, hydrocarbon waxes in particular, and alcohols. And those constituent chemicals don't necessarily degrade readily in the environment themselves. So quite similar to microplastics, they will also now begin accumulating. The effect that they have, I'm not entirely aware of. I, I think it depends um, on which of those chemicals in particular you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But um, getting back to something Gabby or Nikki, I'm sorry, I, I don't know which of you said it earlier. Mm -hmm. It is all about the balance. And, and that is really the essence of circularity. And, and I think people's misunderstanding about, about what is it like a cash for carbon now? Um, yeah, carbon, carbon offsetting programs where you basically are paying to offset carbon by planting a tree, but you're not really doing anything in terms of the greater carbon cycle as it exists. And I saw a really great graphic um, I don't know if this is completely audio or if there's some visual to it. Uh, if there is, I can try and find it. Wouldn't encourage you to show it. Um, but it basically shows the cycle as it exists and cycle as humans have offset it. And I'm getting really off track here. <laughs> um, so I'll try and bring it back on track momentarily. But yeah, oxodegradables are really just a disruption in the natural cycle. They look like they fit into it well. Um, but are essentially um, and, and potentially a, a threat to the environment more so than a benefit. Um, and again, just just for what? To get rid of what is considered an eyesore in, in a body of water. You yeah. Know? So it still contributes to microplastic. Um, I think in, in many instances it does. I, I will not say every single one of them does. Um, and I, I do that to save my own face because just like they, you know, they're, they're staunch believers in their science. I say they, those who are invested in those solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. without fully understanding the exact science of the material that I would otherwise be discrediting, I don't feel like I'm in any place to do so. I see. And but I, yeah, I that don't think we. Quite a bit. Yeah, I and I think that's that's a really, I, I think it's an important perspective to have um, in my shoes, because I, I think perhaps that's what got us into the predicament we're in in the first place, is people uh, perhaps on the outside either turned a blind eye to, or simply were unaware of the fact that yes, in fact, some of them do degrade into microplastics and therefore ignored it altogether and instead promoted and marketed the materials as sustainable, as you pointed out in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So as someone who uh, does work in the industry and specifically for your own experience, what advice might you have for anyone else that's a rising entrepreneur or a student entrepreneur aspiring to start their own environmentally sustainable or social impact-led startup. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said there. Um, there's there's a lot to learn, um, and it and it definitely takes some time. Um, but I'd say some of I think the most valuable to me 
are just being passionate and being outgoing. Um, so find something you have interest in doing and talking about, and then go and talk about it and then talk about it some more. Um, and then I think very importantly, leave some time for listening. Um, you know, not all of the talking has to necessarily be you talking about it, but instead asking questions, um, you know, you're still, you're still talking in that sense. So I want to be very clear, um, but just do everything you can um, to dig up and assess as much data as you can and use that uh, to really take a step back, um, strategize and assess what is the best path forward. And that is not only for your own journey or your own venture, um, but really for the earth uh, at large. No, I think that's great advice. I think just connecting the two points that you made earlier and how when someone ventures into this space and they don't do the research and settle at surface level information when something is claimed to be sustainable or biodegradable and not fully understanding the science or the manufacturing process behind that that might even create more waste and counteract the original intention. But moving on to how kind of technology has become so destructive to the environment, Transform uses technology to produce a carbon negative product. How do you think the shift and just utilizing technology for greater scale on an environmental sustainability level can be more widespread. Yeah, I, I'd first like to answer by saying, I don't think it's the technology necessarily that has become destructive. I think it's the way in which we use it. Um, and that's a lesson I learned, I, I gotta say, or, or really took a liking to earlier this semester. I'm taking a class called Materials That Change the World. And the essence of the class it's that the materials we've used define where we are as a society, but it is how we use them that really determines the outcome of how and if we advance as a society, and then more uh, in more modern times than not, how it impacts the environment. I, I mean, you know, in previous eras, the, the bronze era and it, they probably weren't too concerned about the environment but anyway mm -hmm. um i don't think they needed to be so much so uh, as far as our technology goes um and encouraging the the widespread use of more sustainable technologies i think there's a couple of things to think about um and one i touched upon earlier and i, I think i really hold fast to it and that is just resourcefulness um, it's something I've always taken a little bit of pride in, in my own life. Uh, perhaps that's my, my inner nerd or engineer, you know, using things that perhaps weren't meant to, to solve a problem that I was facing. I, I think resourcefulness is like really the, the easiest mindset to start getting into it. Where is there a, where's there excess waste and where can that be applied or you know where is that material needed where is that item yeah. needed and so that's really the essence of both transform and refurnished and so i i think that's why i've taken a liking to each of those so much you make a very good point so to wrap up this episode we usually ask our uh speaker this one question 
How can we turn this world around? That is the hardest question of them all. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm going to be a little philosophical and ask, you know, what do you mean by turn around? Um, I, I, I mean, of course, I, I know where you're getting at, but what do you mean by turn around? If I may. It can really, I feel like, mean anything. Like, how can, how, what are ways that you have changed in your everyday life? What are some, like, habits you picked up, habits you got rid of? But your thoughts on maybe even a bigger picture of things. Like, as a society, how can we work together to really make a huge impact and really make a difference in something? Because I feel like every day in the news, it's always negative energy or, like, always bad news. Like presented and, and honestly, just always makes you feel so hopeless. I I was asking for for very good reason, um, but you gave me an even better one to have done it, and I I think you really you answered my question, um, or, or you answered for me. I'm sorry, you answered your own question, and I say that because it is up to this the perspectives of not just me, but everyone around me, like yourselves and and your listeners. Um, to just continue to become more educated and to help others around them to become more educated about the things that matter, not only in our own individual lives, but in the lives of, wow, not even human lives around us, but everything around us, you know, the, the planet and, and the living environment. And and I think what you said about positivity is also really valuable. Um, I mean, I'm I'm in no position necessarily to say this myself. I'm not. Um, I, I I don't consider myself a selfish person, but by no means am I selfless. Mm. But I do think no matter where you're at along that scale, if everybody were a little bit more selfless just kind of taking a look around them and asking, you know, what, what is this doing in the grand scheme of things? I, I think that could all contribute, but that in itself is something that needs to be taught. As we pointed out earlier, as a kid, that's not innately something you're going to do because yep. that is the, the world around us as we know it, that is, uh, that is the norm. Um, and, I, and so I think it's, it's starting to poke holes in the norm um, that that'll really contribute to to turning this world around. Poking holes. Very beautifully That's, said. No, I love the makes last sense. Line. And well, now I now I know you're lying because I don't I don't say anything eloquently. <laughs> no, that was super. I no cap. I think that was very well put. <laughs> Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, and Karsh. on that note, thank you so much for joining us. We. I don't, I don't think we said this earlier, but Alec was one of technically our first guests pre-podcast. We literally reached out to him via, I think, LinkedIn after seeing Transform listed as a James Dyson Award entry. And he was gracious enough to reply to our cold reach out on LinkedIn. And we've been chatting with him a couple of times every month since. I don't know if you attach emails or, or stuff of that nature to the podcasts, um, but if anybody wants to get in touch, has follow-up questions about what I've said or, or otherwise wants to chat, um, I, I think I could open up. I, I think I could open that up. I'd be happy to. That's amazing. That's the Alec Brewer we know, guys. 
who is reaching out and making waves, making changes. <laughs> Connect, connecting is immensely valuable. And I, I think we'll also, just to get back to that last question, if I'm not beating a dead horse, um, I, I think interconnectedness of people um, is really valuable and is something that we now have the clear capability to do. And I think we'll also contribute overall to not only the empathy required, but the just awareness or the awareness that can spark the empathy perhaps to do what we need to do. Definitely. Beautifully said and beautifully wrapped up. Thank you so much again. We are so excited for everyone else to hear your thoughts and this whole episode in general yeah well thank, thank you, you for listening everyone we're earth friends and the earth is our friend <laughs> <laughs>